0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of A Grey Matter about sleep apnea and dementia. I'm Rebecca Archer. People living with dementia often have disturbed sleep, even years prior to experiencing any other symptoms. Unfortunately, as is the case with many risk factors, we don't know whether this is a cause or a symptom, and it could in fact be both. Professor Elizabeth Coulson specialises in dementia research here at the Queensland Brain Institute, and she's heading up a team which is looking into the connection between sleep apnea and dementia risks. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. First of all, can you describe exactly what sleep apnea is and how it affects the brain?
1: Sleep apnea is a condition typically due to the collapse of the airways, the upper airways around your tongue and the upper airways, which happens during sleep and this blocks the airways and causes you to get uh, less oxygen into your lungs and that in turn causes you to, to wake up so that you can take a breath and then you can go back to sleep again. That waking up might only be in microseconds but it causes both disrupted sleep and also low oxygen in your body and your brain.
0: And so obstructive sleep apnea has been identified as a significant risk factor in the development of Alzheimer's disease. Why exactly is this?
1: Well, we don't know why this is. It's a a risk factor, which means that you're more likely, maybe five times more likely, to develop Alzheimer's disease in your lifetime if you have sleep apnea. But the, the reasons for this are unclear, but it could be for a number of different reasons. One is because you have disrupted sleep, and we know that sleep's really important for consolidating the events of the day for your memory. It could also be because of the lack of oxygen. And we know that our organs need oxygen to function, and in particular, the brain needs oxygen and so the nerve cells could be damaged by the lack of oxygen and also sleep's important for clearing out the toxins in our body including in the brain.
0: Now you just mentioned it's five times more likely. Is that something that you've only discovered recently? How did you come to that particular finding or or how do we know that?
1: The risk factor is really by research of epidemiologists, so they look across the population and that's been known for quite a while. And there's emerging recent evidence linking certain features of sleep apnea with particular forms of dementia, but it's still very unclear what the cause and effect is.
0: So what might be going on in the brain for sleep apnea to possibly contribute to dementia?
1: We've been focusing particularly to try and understand the relationship between the disrupted sleep and the hypoxia or the lack of oxygen in the brain.
0: How difficult is it to work out if you're experiencing sleep apnea? I mean, is this something that's harder to pick up? For example, if you're not sharing a room with someone who's constantly noticing that you're having a terrible night's sleep and that you're frequently waking in the night? And do you think that this is something that's going undiagnosed quite often?
1: So we do know that most people turn up to a sleep clinic or think they might have sleep apnea because their partner notices their disrupted sleep and also the change in their breathing pattern. So often, with sleep apnea, there'll be breaths and then there'll be a no breath for quite a long time, and then there'll be a big gasp while they take in the oxygen they need. But Sometimes your sleeping partner sleeps very well and you don't disrupt them or you're not sharing a bed or a bedroom with somebody and then it may be that you don't know that you have this problem and what the symptom might be is that you've just got daytime sleepiness and you're not really sure why that is.
0: How does it work in a sleep clinic? What is the process of testing to see whether or not someone is living with sleep apnea?
1: Typically what happens would be that you would go to a sleep clinic and these are available in hospitals and you would get wired up things onto your head to see what type of sleep you're in and whether you're asleep as well as a whole lots of other monitors for your your breathing rates and how much oxygen you have in your blood, for example, and then you're meant to have a nice night's sleep. Obviously that's a bit tricky and then the doctors will look at all that information decide whether you have sleep apnea, what sort of sleep apnea it is, whether it's obstructive or or central, and then whether there's an appropriate treatment that you can have for that. For example, often what's prescribed is continuous positive airway pressure which is a breathing machine. But there's also, these days, there are ways that you can be diagnosed at home so that you can take some of the bits of machines or monitoring home with you for a night or a couple of nights to get an indication of whether or not you might have sleep apnea.
0: And are these CPAP machines quite common? I hear them talked about a lot more frequently in society than perhaps even 5, 10, 20 years ago.
1: So the the estimation is that maybe 50% of the elderly might have sleep apnea or some form of sleep-related breathing disorder. And so as people become more aware of it and are, are being diagnosed with sleep apnea, then they're also being prescribed the CPAP machine, which is the gold standard treatment. And so many more people, particularly more elderly people are being prescribed to breathe through this machine which is just basically keeping your airways open by having positive pressure of the air sort of forcing it if you will down your airways to keep your oxygen high and also to therefore mean you don't have to wake up but it's not the most pleasant thing not that many people maybe 50% of people really keep up with it and are compliant um, with what they they should be with their sleep apnea treatment.
0: Right that's a pretty low rate considering what we're trying to figure out whether or not there is a link to dementia from yes. sleep apnea.
1: That's very true and I think the other issue with trying to work out what the risk factor is, is that in our community, the biggest cause of obstructive sleep apnea is actually being overweight and being obese. And that brings with it another set of risk factors, cardiovascular factors and and so forth, which are independently also risk factors for Alzheimer's disease or other dementias.
0: You're currently working with a team of researchers who are embarking on a study following patients aged between 55 and 70 with sleep apnea over a lengthy period to see whether there's a correlation with brain degeneration. Where are you at in this study at the moment and what have you found out so far?
1: This is a a very exciting pilot study. We know that not everybody who has sleep apnea is going to end up with brain degeneration or, or dementia. So we're trying to understand what features of the sleep apnea might be linked to cognitive impairment and long-term cognitive impairment, which would be the feature of which is that the brain degenerates. So we have studied about almost 100 people who have come in with a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea and they're being fitted for the CPAP treatment and we're giving them uh, cognitive tests and then we're also looking in their brain by magnetic resonance imaging, so a way we can look into the, the brain while people are still alive. So far what we're finding is that quite a number of the people with sleep apnea do have cognitive impairment or the early signs of cognitive impairment. And particular forms, there are different sorts of cognitive impairment. So you might have memory or you might have personality changes, memory loss or, or problems with verbal fluency. So being able to recall all the animals whose names start with P, for example. So we're finding people with sleep apnea do worse on some particular forms of cognitive tests and now we're analyzing the results to see if that correlates with changes in the brain as well and the next step of that study is actually to follow those people up again to see what's happened to their cognition over the last 12 to 18 months and hopefully to be able to see whether if they've been on CPAP or not, that that's made a difference. It's a pilot study because this is not that many people, but it would be the first step in doing a longer and longitudinal study of these patients.
0: So what sort of time frame would that be then for the entirety of the study?
1: Uh, So the study has been going on for a a few years. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to pause in the middle and also because of the funding bodies, we we could only do so many scans. But the follow-up is ongoing at the moment and hopefully in the the next 12 months or so, we'll be able to publish those results.
0: Fantastic. So I understand you're also looking into screening newly diagnosed diagnosed dementia patients for sleep apnea. How is that progressing?
1: This is something that's been really interesting in talking to the clinicians. So this work has actually come out of work where we've been exploring these ideas in mouse models and then talking to the sleep clinicians and also to the Alzheimer's clinicians. And the dementia clinicians were sceptical about this link with obstructive sleep apnea. But what they found was when they talked to their patients who came in complaining of memory issues about whether they had sleep problems or a diagnosis of sleep apnea, that a lot of the elderly people were saying that they did. And actually, that started changing how they dealt with their patients. And to formalise this, we're doing a study to look at at those people and do a sleep study on them to see just how many of them actually have sleep apnea and that could be responsible for cognitive impairment that is not irreversible. Maybe if they get their treatment for the sleep apnea, then their short-term memories might improve because they're getting better sleep.
0: I'm guessing it's quite difficult too because as we age, we all sort of just seem to accept that, oh, you you have a poorer quality of sleep. So you might just write off bad night's sleep to, well, I'm getting older and that's just what happens in life when in fact you may be someone who is suffering from sleep apnea and you just don't realise it. How do you try to capture those people and diagnose them? with
1: sleep apnea. I think that's a, a really good point and one of the, the issues with the current healthcare system is it's very siloed. You go to your GP and you say I have problem X or Y and they will send you to a specialist and the specialist really only looks at the one thing that they're the specialist in whether that's sleep or whether that's memory problems And this was one of the things that we really found when we were doing the collaborations with the hospital is when we first started looking at people with sleep apnea to look at their memory problems, we were finding people who were really quite bad with their cognitive abilities. And the sleep um, study staff said, oh, yes, we know many of them have problems with their cognition what do you do about that? Well, nothing. We're just here to monitor their sleep. And so we were ethically, with our study, we had to refer them onto the memory clinic in the same way that if we found that they had a tumour in their brain, very rare, but it could happen, we're ethically obliged to have those patients be followed up. And that's the same with the, the memory impairment that we were seeing, but the sleep clinic wasn't set up to do that. And then that's the same thing with the the memory clinic that they're now referring people across to the sleep clinic to try and get a, a better whole person healthcare rather than just bits and pieces.
0: Well, at least that's some progress, which is encouraging. Your team has also developed a candidate therapy called C29. What exactly does this do and what could it potentially mean for treatment, specifically as a possible replacement, perhaps, for current drugs that are used in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease?
1: That's a difficult question to answer succinctly, but I'll give it a try. One of the things we know about a number of forms of dementia is that a certain set of neurons die very early in the, the course of dementia. And these are neurons that we can sort of see by magnetic resonance imaging, so the the brain scans. What we have been able to do in the lab in tissue culture dishes is come up with a drug candidate that is quite good at helping this particular set of neurons but also other neurons to not die and in our mouse studies we've been able to show that hypoxia so the lack of oxygen in the brain causes these neurons to die and that our drug candidate can stop them dying. Now That's very exciting, obviously, but the compound C29 is nowhere close to being a drug. It's really an experimental tool at the moment, but it does mean that this gives us a lot of impetus to turn it or something like it into a drug that can be given to people who might experience the early signs of dementia or perhaps sleep apnea. The interesting thing is that this set of neurons is actually the target of current dementia drugs. So we can't keep those neurons alive. We don't have treatments that keep the, the neurons or the nerve cells alive. But what the drugs do is help those neurons, help the function of those neurons to work in the brain. So these drugs are already given to people with dementia, Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia with Lewy body. They're called calling esterase inhibitors or aricept is, is the term that many people might know. So with our mouse studies, knowing that the, the hypoxia and the intermittent form of hypoxia causes these neurons to die, maybe we can prophylactically give people with sleep apnea these other drugs. Now, that's not something we can just do because we've done a mouse study. We have to do clinical trials, etc. for that. And we don't want to be giving these drugs to people who have normal function of their brains. So there's a lot of work to be done to really work out whether there is a population with sleep apnea who would benefit, and then what sort of dosing, et cetera, that they would be required, let alone whether they do stop the risk of dementia forming.
0: And so if that compound arrests the deterioration of those particular neurons, making one link to another, does that mean then that the pathway, I suppose, to dementia is blocked effectively?
1: That's a good question. We believe so. And certainly in in some of our animal models of dementia, that is the case. So we know if we kill these particular nerve cells off, that exacerbates both the cognitive changes, but also the pathological changes of Alzheimer's disease, the plaques and tangles. And conversely, if we stop these neurons dying, then that cascade doesn't happen in the mouse models. Whether that's going to work in humans, we don't know. These diseases are very complicated, but the the hypothesis, if you will, and the hope would be that it may not cure it, but it would certainly slow it down.
0: Now, Elizabeth, I am curious whether you have had any personal connection to dementia and whether that perhaps influenced your decision to follow the research path that you've taken.
1: I had two grandmothers one who was very cognitively bright right till the the end she was 93 or 94 her body failed her but not her mind and conversely my other grandmother did lose short term memory uh, towards the end of her life, whereas her body held out. But that wasn't really what was driving me. I've always had a, a curiosity for the mechanisms that underpin learning and memory. And I guess the reasons why I've got into studying dementia is that that's the lack of learning and memory. And so that's where my curiosity lies. The ability to actually help people with that fundamental understanding, is also a driver.
0: That makes sense. You have described yourself as a problem solver, a lover of jigsaw puzzles and crime books. Would you say that those traits create the perfect storm for the kind of research that you're doing, um, where you need to not only be curious and methodical, but also extremely patient?
1: Most definitely, I think science is a problem, that there are gaps in knowledge and what drives me and I think others is to try and fill those gaps in the same way as finding the right jigsaw piece to fit into that puzzle and to be able to see the whole. And then, you know, similar with crime stories to try and understand what the, who the bad guys are and how you can stop them. And that's sort of the drive to create drugs to try and increase human health and the community.
0: And apart from your own area of research, is there anything being studied at the moment with regards to the brain that's particularly piqued your curiosity and are things that you particularly want to follow in terms of the progress of that type of research?
1: I think the area that crosses over a lot is the cognitive processes and at a very neuronal level, the connections between neurons and how our brain as a computer really, the little intricate pathways, how the information travels through those connections of neurons and comes out with a memory or a picture in your mind or an answer to a solution I think I find that so fascinating. It's not my area of expertise, but how how does that computation happen? I think it's fascinating.
0: And for anyone that's listening today who might be thinking, you know, is there a link between sleep apnea and dementia? And if I'm having a bad night's sleep, it's, is that going to put me on a pathway to having a degenerative condition in my older age? What would you say to them in terms of trying to maybe tamp down any panic, but also keep the awareness levels quite high?
1: Certainly, if you're worried about your sleep, that does not mean that you're going to end up with dementia. We know many people who have disrupted sleep, nurses, truck drivers, those sorts of people who go on to live very happy, healthy lives and, and don't get dementia. And certainly having one bad night's sleep is not the, the issue If you are having constantly disrupted sleep and particularly if once you have a diagnosis that you're having hypoxic episodes, we know that this is not good for your body, whether it's for your brain or for your heart or or whatever. And I think that's where... It's worth having a chat to your GP, maybe having a a sleep trial, going to the sleep clinic to get some help to assist with that. And it may be that it's not as bad as you think, or if it is, then it's appropriate to get tested. And that's got to be a good thing for your long-term health, whether it's related to dementia or not.
0: Very good advice. Well, Elizabeth, thank goodness we have curious, dedicated people like yourself here at the Queensland Brain Institute carrying out the work that you are doing. It's been really wonderful to hear from you about sleep apnea and dementia today. Thank you very, very much for your time.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: If you'd like to learn more or support the work that we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of The Brain magazine. I'm Rebecca Archer and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.